Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 22, Exodus 2:23 to 3:15, which can be found on page 46 of the Pew Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their, their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has, has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, 
and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is God's word. Thanks, Rado. I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we go before the Lord in prayer and consider his word together. Gracious God, we recognize that every time we open your word, we are standing on holy ground because where you speak, there you are, and you are speaking in your scriptures. But Lord, we recognize that of all places where that is true, here it is in this passage where you reveal your name to us, God. And so we pray that we would listen with humble hearts, eager to see your glory revealed in your word. Give us ears this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When a couple uh, finds out that they are pregnant, expecting, there are many rituals you immediately kind of begin to go through, and probably, maybe, perhaps, the most contentious of those rituals is agreeing together on a name for the baby who is to come. Uh, Carissa has often said that it's probably good that we only have one boy because we have never agreed on another boy's name except for Joshua. And, and you know, naming your child's kind of a big deal. Uh, do you go with a family name? It's kind of, you know, the honorable. Uh, it's pretty common uh, to do. Do you pick a biblical name, which is usually pretty safe? You know, David, Micah, Sarah, Deborah. Uh, you do have to be a little bit careful. Uh, you don't want to end up with Meher Shalal Khashbaz or something like that. Uh, I once had a friend who asked me uh, what Beth Aven meant from the book of Hosea. Uh, it sounds very pretty, you know, Beth as a first name, Aven as a middle name. It's just, it rings together. When I told her it meant house of iniquity, she, you know, wisely moved on uh, and kept looking. And so, you know, there's the biblical route, and then there's the creative route, which is, you know, popular today. If you don't want your kid to be uh, the fourth or fifth person with that name in their class, you've got to mix it up a little bit. And so, maybe you do a, a new spelling on an old name, or you just make one up all together. Hashtag, or billion or rocket those are some of the new ones that uh that are out or you could do the whole celebrity baby name thing you know ocean or apple or sage moonblood or something like that but by far in my own opinion the coolest name i have ever heard is what carissa's cousin named his son chase danger jones so think about it. i mean Not only is his name a sentence, but his middle name is literally danger. It's just, that's awesome. But, you know, as much pressure as we put on ourselves to come up with the perfect name for our child, a name today is still little more than an identifying tag for someone. The way that we know we're talking about this person and not that person or that one which is very different from the way that names function in the Bible. 
when someone is given a name in the Bible, it's rarely just an identifying tag. It often communicates something of the person's character or, or reputation or even the role that they might play in life. And so, for instance, you think of Abram, whose, whose name means exalted father, um, but uh, you know, when, he is, when, when God makes his covenant with him, he gives him a new name. You're going to be called Abraham now, which means father of a multitude. And that name tells you what role he's going to play in the story. He's going to become this father of a multitude of nations. Or, or you think of Jacob, whose name means cheater. And so he was through most of his life. Um, or in the book of Exodus so far, we have the name Moses, which means, you know, sounds like the, the Hebrew for drew out. She drew him out. Pharaoh's daughter drew him out of the water and named him Moses. And, and it's this picture not only of Moses' experience of salvation, but kind of a sign of the kind of salvation Israel's going to experience later in the story. His name is significant. Or the name that Moses gave to his uh, firstborn, Gershom which sounds like sojourner or alien or wanderer, because that's what Moses became when he had uh, been rejected by both Israel and Egypt and is now settled in this foreign land among the foreign people. He's a wanderer, a sojourner. So his son's name is Gershom. And so in the Bible, names are significant. They tell us something about the person. And more important than Any other name that we encounter in the Scripture is the name revealed to us in our passage this morning. The name of the Lord, Yahweh. I am who I am. We often hear people talk about the names of God. God has all these different names. God or God Almighty or Father or Lord, El Shaddai and so on and so forth. And Technically speaking, those are not names. Those are titles. God has lots of titles. But he only has one self-chosen proper name. And it's the one he reveals in this story. Now, we're not 100% sure how to pronounce it. Uh, The pronunciation of the name fell out of use centuries before Jesus because it was basically considered too holy to even pronounce or, or people just didn't want to risk breaking the third commandment and taking the, the Lord's name in vain. And so, so it wasn't pronounced even. Uh, it was substituted with, uh, the, what's the Hebrew word for Lord, Adonai. Uh, sometimes you hear the name pronounced today as Jehovah, probably far more likely would be something along the lines of Yahweh. Again, we're not 100% sure. But you can always recognize when your Bible is translating the proper name of God in the Old Testament, because what it will do is it'll put the word Lord in all capital letters. So if you've ever wondered why sometimes you're reading and Lord is in all caps, and then a few lines later it's you know, not in all caps, and you're like, what's the difference there? Well, this is why. Whenever the proper name of God, Yahweh, is translated in your Bibles, your translators have shown you that by putting it in all capital letters as Lord. When Lord's not in all caps, that's the Hebrew name or the Hebrew title Adonai, which means like Lord or Master. Uh, it's a, a position of authority. But more important than recognizing the name when you see it on the page is knowing what that name tells us 
about the God who bears it. As one author puts it, the identity of God, the mission of God, the action of God are all bound up in this one name. But this name comes to us, it's revealed to us not in a phone book or a kiosk or a dictionary or or a label, but in a story, in the story that we've been working our way through so far in the book of Exodus. So last week in this story, we met one of the main characters of Exodus, Moses, who, despite uh, being a pillar of ancient Israel, really had a questionable start to his career. We kind of saw that last week after spending the first 40 years of his life in luxury, being raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. He then spends the next 40 years of his life in relative obscurity as a, as a refugee, a foreigner, a sojourner in the land of Midian after his kind of failed attempt to uh, rescue uh, one of the Hebrews, which ended up getting him rejected by both his people and the people of Egypt. And we kind of wondered, as that story kind of came to a close, is this really the guy that God's going to use to deliver his people, this guy? Um, Well, we pick up the story here in Exodus 2.23, and we're going to find the answer to that question, is this really God's guy in the next big section of the book, which stretches from Exodus 2.23 all the way to 4.17. It's one big chunk here, and it's a long section, and so we're going to split it up into a couple of weeks. We'll start this morning, and then when we come back to Exodus after the missions conference, we'll, we'll pick it up again. And, and as we're going to see, even today, the real answer to that question, is this really God's guy? The real answer to that question has nothing to do with Moses and everything to do with the God who reveals his name to Moses in this story. And so look again at your Bibles, Exodus 2.23. It's where we pick up the story. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew So far in the story of Exodus, we have seen that that despite multiplying and growing into this great nation, just like God promised would happen, uh, the people of Israel became viewed as a threat. They became a threat to Egypt. And so the king of Egypt first tries to enslave them, uh, the entire nation, and then attempts to systematically murder all of the, the baby boys in Israel. To, to stop them from growing and becoming worse of a threat. And, and we've watched this story unfold, and as we've seen it, we've seen hints that God's at work in the background. But we haven't really seen him show up on the page yet. Uh, we've seen these subtle ways in which he thwarts Pharaoh's agenda, but, but he's still been relatively absent. And so, so you read this, this passage here, and you hear this groaning. I don't know if you noticed, four times in these verses... The word groan or cry is used. Israel is suffering severely. And you, you wonder, where is this God whose, whose people are suffering? And here we see that he has not been absent, 
But he shows up and, and we see this great attention he gives. He is compassionately attentive to his children. For every time that groan or cry is mentioned in these verses, we're told of some action God is taking on behalf of his people. He hears their groaning. He remembers his covenant. He sees his people and he knows. He knows their suffering. He has not ignored his children. Nor has he been taken off guard by Pharaoh. We were told clear back in Genesis 15 that this whole series of events of Israel being enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years. We were told that that was going to happen. God appeared to Abraham and he said to him, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And so when it says that God remembered his covenant, you know, he hears these cries, he remembers his covenant. It's not as though he forgot for a while. It's like, oh yeah, I had these people that I promised. It's like I forget when I show up, having said I was going to go to the store, and I just come straight home, you know, I forgot to go to the store. God doesn't, it didn't slip his memory. To say that he remembered his covenant is to say that he calls it to mind in order to act upon it. This was promised long ago. This is not taking God off guard. And he is remembering his covenant in that he is going to do something about it. A covenant that would be fulfilled not by going around suffering, but by going through suffering. And we see his compassion uh, welling up at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 3 then tells us just what he's going to do about this, how he's going to act on behalf of his people. And you come to chapter 3, and really we have one of the most iconic scenes in the entire Bible, Moses in the burning bush. I mean, it's the storybooks on your shelf and, 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 and the pictures on the walls of nurseries and so on. Uh, is this iconic scene, Moses here, having settled in the land of, of Midian with a wife and a family. He's taken up his father-in-law's trade. He's shepherding. Uh, he's going about business as usual. Which is why God uses something rather unusual to get his attention. This bush that's clearly on fire, but not being burned up. Like all the leaves and everything are still there. It's not being consumed. That's weird. And, and Moses notices that it's weird. He doesn't know yet that the place where he's at, this mountain, is somehow special to God. That as the narrator tells us, uh, the mountain of God, Horeb, or, or what's usually called Sinai. Uh, he doesn't know that what he's seeing is actually the angel of the Lord. Nor, as we're about to find out, does he even really know who the Lord is. But all of that's about to change. Moses turns aside and, and he goes to kind of take a closer look at this strange spectacle. And God calls to him from the bush by name. That'll freak you out. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. What is a 
an otherwise normal mountain and an otherwise normal bush becomes sacred, holy. Not because there's something magical about the place, but because God is there. His presence makes it holy. And so this instruction to remove your shoes is a picture of recognizing the holiness of the God who is appearing to him. It's a sign of reverence and humility before God. But who is this God speaking to Moses, and why is he here on this mountain? He tells Moses in verse 6 who he is. I am the God of your father. Remember, Moses growing up in Egypt and then living in Midian most of his life, there's this disconnect he has. Here is the God of his father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, to which Moses responds in fear, as I think any person would. He's afraid to look at this God. And as if, as if he wasn't afraid enough, God then tells him his plan, what he's going to do, and how it includes Moses. Look with me at verses 7 through 10. And, and as we read these verses, pay attention for echoes of the end of chapter 2. So the kind of things God did at the end of chapter 2. Notice how they come up again in his plan here in chapter 3. So chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God has heard and seen his people. He knows their suffering, and he is going to rescue them and fulfill his promise to Abraham to, to bring them into this land that is uh, marked by his presence and his provision. And he's going to do that. And, and he reiterates it again, verses 9 through 10. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Sounds a lot like verse 7, right? Now watch for the difference between verse 8 and verse 10. Verse 8 said, God said, I'm going to come down. Listen to verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God is going to act upon, uh, on the behalf of his people to save them. He is going to come down to deliver. And he's going to do that by sending Moses. Talk about the most overwhelming job interview in history. And Moses reacts the way any normal human should react in this situation. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Why me? What did I do to get signed up for this? Moses clearly recognizes he is not cut out for this. And, and we'll talk about this part of the story. Moses' call more when we come back to this passage in a, in a few weeks. 
Uh, But notice here what God does not say to Moses in response. Moses says, who am I? God does not say to him, well, you can do this. You've got to believe in yourself. You are smart enough and brave enough. I believe in you. All of the things we expect someone to say nowadays, right? He doesn't say any of that. Instead, he responds by promising to be with him. He responds by promising his presence. Verse 12, he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Again, we'll come back to that in a, in a couple of weeks, but what equips Moses for his call is not his wisdom or his intelligence or his can-do attitude or his mad leadership skills or anything like that. What equips him for this call is the presence of God. God will be with him. That's what makes the difference. But Moses anticipates a situation. He's playing this out in his mind. What's going to happen when I go back? Okay. And, and, and here's where the divine name comes into focus. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses is picturing, How's this conversation going to go? Uh, you know, when he shows up out of the blue, not having been seen for 40 years, and claims that God has sent him to these people to bring them up out of Egypt, and they know what Pharaoh can do. I mean, that's just crazy talk. How, how are they going? What if, how are they going to believe him? What if they ask me for your name? What do I tell them? Do you have a business card or something I can show them to prove that you really called me? And, you know, what you realize there with Moses' question is just how disconnected he has come, become from the people of God and from God himself. Notice first how he says, if I come to the people and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, not the God of our fathers. He, he sees himself as an outsider. And, and then just the fact that he doesn't appear to know the name of God. Uh, a name that, you know, we, we see used on the lips of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. A name that is going to be revealed in a deeper, truer way in the book of Exodus. But Moses doesn't seem to know this name. Which, again, isn't entirely surprising when you think about the fact that he was raised in an Egyptian household and has spent his last 40 years uh, in exile. And so Moses is really asking an honest question. If they want some verification that I'm really representing you, what is your name? What do I tell them about who sent me? But notice what God does here. He takes Moses' question and he uses it as an opportunity to reveal not merely the name, but the significance of his name what it means, what this name tells us about the God who bears it. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now you kind of understand why God tells Moses to take off his shoes. This is one of the uh, most weighty passages, weighty experiences in all of biblical history. The revelation of God's proper name. Not just the word, but the significance, the meaning of it. And so what does it mean? The clue comes in the declaration that God makes before he actually answers Moses' question. You know, Moses asks him, what do I say? And before God says, say this to the people of Israel, he makes a declaration. I am who I am. Why would he say that? Instead of just answering the question. Some have accused him here of being a bit snarky and dismissive. I am who I am. Don't you question me, Moses, kind of thing. I don't think that gets at the heart of it. As one author suggests, I am who I am is not a rebuttal, but a clue to the meaning of the proper name Yahweh. God's name involves something that he will be or is. And that makes sense when you consider that the name Yahweh comes from the Hebrew verb to be. Uh, For instance, um, Moses' name came from the verb to draw out. God's name Yahweh comes from the verb for to be. I am. He is. It's where the word comes from. And God himself makes a connection between that verb and his name in his answer here. Look again and notice the parallel between God's two answers to Moses' actual question. What do I say to them? And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Also, God said, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, has sent me to you. The Lord means I am. God's name means he is. It deals with who God is. Okay? So who is he then? Who is he? Does, does this mean he's like, like you know, the self-existing one? He just is? He didn't you know, come to be or anything like that? He is? Uh, or, or any number of existential and philosophical definitions of the name? How do we understand what he's saying here? Well, here's where we have to remember that God reveals his name to us not on a business card or a placard on his desk or a sign outside the office, but in a story. He reveals the significance of his name in the story that's being told right here. God is who he is in this story. He is who he is revealing himself to be to Moses. That's what his name means. And so who is he in this story? Well, think about what we've been reading. He is the God who is too holy to approach. He's holy and majestic. And yet he's also the God who cares deeply about his people. 
Think again of, of, of the connections we saw between the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, 6 through 10. He's the God who hears his people's groaning, sees their affliction, knows their suffering, and remembers his covenant with their forefathers. Our holy God is a personal, compassionate God who loves his people. And then and think about his promise of what he's going to do. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up into the, this good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God is the God who will save his people from their bondage and bring them to where he wants them to be. He will deliver them and rescue them. And he will do this by being with them. He's the God who is present. In fact, this is the closest contextual link in the story to what God means when he says that I am. Uh, When Moses, if you look again at verses 11 and 12, Moses asks, who am I that I should go? God's answer in verse 12 is, I will be with you. But the words, I will be, are translating the exact phrase that comes up in verses 14 and 15, I am. So in other words, who am I that I should go? God's answer, I am with you. That's what he's saying. Exact, identical phrase. So he's the God who is present with his people. And he's present with his people because he cares deeply about them and is committed to save them. This is who God is. He's the holy God who hears and sees and knows his people, who will be faithful to his covenant, who comes down to be present with them in order to save them and bring them to where he wants them to be. That is his name. And according to verse 15, that will be his name to all generations. This is our God. So when you call upon the name of the Lord, or trust in the name of the Lord, or pray to the name in the name of the Lord. This is the God you are calling upon, praying to, trusting in. That is who he is and who he will always be. A compassionate God who comes down to be with us because he is committed to the salvation of his people. And he will always live up to that name. Once again, the identity of God, the mission of God, the the action of God are all bound up in that one name. And when you think about that name, the Lord, and, and its journey through Scripture as God continues to act in accordance with his name, when you think about that name when you get to the New Testament and you meet someone named Jesus and you realize what his name means, There's a whole new level of significance that's unveiled. In Matthew 1, when the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and tells him about the boy that Mary's going to have, he says to him, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. Take the name Joshua in Hebrew, Yehoshua, put it into Greek letters, you get Jesus. 
one of the reasons we liked Joshua's name so much. That name means Yahweh saves. That's what the name Jesus means. The Lord, Yahweh, saves. Think about that in light of all that we've been looking at. Everything we've learned about who the Lord is is all wrapped up into the name of Jesus. The God who is holy, who who is compassionate, who sees and hears and knows and remembers his covenant, who is active and committed to our salvation, who comes down to be present with us in order to rescue us and bring us out of bondage to, to his presence and glory, that God, he saves. That's what Jesus' name means. And so, when you, it's no wonder that, to then see, as you, as you go through the New Testament, to see Jesus taking on this identity of Yahweh as he accomplishes God's kingdom. You know, in John chapter 8, 58 to 59, Jesus says to the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And in case you were wondering, did he really go there? Did he really use the proper name of God? In In case you were wondering whether that's what he was doing, look at how the Jews responded. They picked up stones to kill him. Because that, if he's not God, that was blasphemy. And he takes up the name I am. And he does it seven other times in the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus is making a big point that this God of Exodus, here he is in the flesh. And he's doing for you what he did for Israel. He has come down to save. But perhaps the clearest declaration of Jesus taking on, sharing in God's unique identity of Yahweh is in Philippians 2. Where Paul declares that after Jesus has has become incarnate and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is who? The Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when Paul is writing that there, he is quoting Isaiah 45. And the word Lord in Isaiah 45 is unambiguous. It's Yahweh. That Jesus Christ is Yahweh. That is the declaration every tongue will make in the end. That God, He saves. That's who Jesus is. And so when you think about your need for salvation, not just from the suffering that we experience in this world, but ultimately from our sin and rebellion against God, The wrath we deserve because of it. When you think of your need for salvation, do you turn to the Lord whose very name 
expresses his compassion for us and his commitment to rescue us. His very name tells us that he has come down to be with us in the midst of our suffering and sin in order to save us and bring us out of our bondage to the place he wants us to be. Do you know this God by name? The Lord saves. He is the Lord. Besides him, there is no Savior. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about the revelation of your name How can we respond any other way than Moses' first response? Who are we, Lord? Who are we that you should love us and call us and reveal yourself to us? But God, thank you that that's not the most important question. The most important question is who are you? And you have made yourself known by name to us. Ultimately, through the cross and resurrection of Christ. God, may we not take your name in vain. May we not bear it in an empty way, but may we always rest, always trust, always rejoice in who you are. We praise you that that's the most important question. And that because the answer to that question is your name, the Lord, Yahweh, the God who sees us and knows us and comes down to save us, because that's the answer to the question who you are. The other question doesn't matter so much. Who are we? We are loved by you. That's the answer to that question. We praise you. We praise your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand, sing our closing song number 66, The God of Abraham Praise.
Thank you for worshiping with us this morning and beholding our God together in his word. If you would like prayer, uh, members of our prayer team uh, love that privilege, and you can find them near the organ after the service. And now receive the benediction. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Amen.